Yo, this hot, this the spot, there it is pod.com We're interviewing the best comedians, so tune in quick and get your ears receiving them We talking about life and life to stream right to you From the microphone right to your home, dude Side note, this might get embarrassing, but no, don't sweat, yo Cause there it is Welcome to the There It Is Podcast, a comedy podcast for creators of any variety. I'm your host, Jason Farr. Let's do this. Y'all, I cannot have enough water to stay hydrated. Like, I just had a cup of Earl Grey tea and I'm wired. Like, that is not supposed to happen with Earl Grey tea. It's a third of the caffeine is a cup of coffee. And yet, I am raring to go. This is where you can reach me now. This is not right. (laughs) I'll just drink some aloe vera water because apparently we're drinking aloe now. Well, I have some exciting news. We are going to launch a newsletter and it's not going to be about the podcast. It's about all this awesome stuff. We're going to talk about it at length in a couple of weeks, but I'm just excited to put it out in the universe now so that it has to happen. It has to. Also excited about today's episode, our guest is Jess Solomon, a New York City comic I saw on The Tonight Show. She has a great origin story, like get the superhero treatment, an origin story. Here's my chat with Jess Solomon. I don't know if you've been getting this lately, but I found out about you because you were recently on The Tonight Show. That's true. Um, I haven't been getting a lot of podcast requests, like specifically since then, so... Uh, but, um, definitely some messages and, you know, some bookings and stuff, but it was a very exciting thing that happened. Yeah. And, uh, my, my life is pretty much the, the same, mm-hmm. um, other than that. I think my mom now has a, a newfound respect for my <laughs> comedy career. Oh Yeah. I mean, when you get on The Tonight Show, then, you know, uh, that's a dawning moment for a lot of people. You know, and you mentioned your mom, so we have to just get into it right off the bat. You haven't been doing comedy and performing since you were a little kid. And, you know, this was a natural progression that your parents saw necessarily. You spent uh, a good bit of time as a U.N. war crimes lawyer. Yeah, that's before right. Before getting into comedy. So let's talk about it. Um, uh, you're not the first lawyer to who yeah. went into comedy that I've interviewed, but uh, you are the first UN war crimes one. And this is a very serious uh, type of lawyer that, that you, uh, or type of law that you practiced. Um, how many years did you do that? So, yeah, I mean, I just, I it's not the typical trajectory, of course. Mm. And I, you know, I thought, well, you know, UCB seems to take a lot of time and it's pretty expensive. So maybe this would be a different route I should take. Why not? (laughs) Um, but I, um, I was a lawyer for like three years, I'd say in total, I I was in the, I was a war crimes lawyer with the UN for two and a half years and an intern before that at the same tribunal for, like three months, and I worked uh, in the Canadian Department of Justice for about a year as I was getting my bar. Um, so I don't know, maybe three and a half years total as like a, an actual lawyer. Wow. Uh, 
licensed and all of that. And uh, yeah, I, I know that there are other lawyers and I, I think a lot of lawyers harbor ambitions and dreams of doing things outside of law other mm-hmm. than um, because a lot of them, you know, tell me so. And um, but I and I can see why there's sort of like law and comedy have some kind of overlap in <laughs> terms of how people's brains work. Mm-hmm. But um, certainly it wasn't something anyone suggested I do I wasn't one of these comedians who have the story of like being funny in front of their friends and all their friends telling them they should do comedy like nobody told me I should do comedy and um yeah there wasn't there was I I didn't do a lot of the arts uh, you know acting or dancing or singing or any of that uh previously so I I get why um (laughs) was nobody was daring me to go up on an open mic or anything it is something that a lot of times when people start in a different field, they they had an interest, but people saw maybe something uh, there. You're saying that wasn't the case for you. So how did it become an interest? I mean, I, I know that when I was a kid, I always enjoyed telling funny stories about mm-hmm. my family and things that happened to me. And I mean, I, that's the only thing I can like look back and see that there was some kind of seed was I would get requests from for like to retell particular stories about my family uh, from other students and from friends. And uh, I, I think I was a funny kid, but I, I never really, I never really thought that comedy was like something I just wasn't like on the radar as a potential profession. And when I got into, when I was in college, I got really interested in human rights issues. I always had, um, I always cared a lot about inequality and justice in a broad sense. And then I got in, interested in, in human rights work when I learned, uh, when I started studying refugee issues in undergrad and um, got turned on to this one law professor who was in Montreal at McGill where I was from. And mm-hmm. I wanted to work with him. I didn't necessarily want to go into law. I just wanted to do something good in the world and be part of the solution. And I knew that I did not have a stomach for blood or you know, to be a doctor or a brain for math to build wells anywhere or irrigation systems. And I knew I couldn't necessarily be like a forensic type of um, investigator. And and so sort of being a little bit removed from from the the immediate horror of all of that um and and just sort of being in the courtroom and dealing with with you know law which is a little bit more removed and after the facts seemed like the place where I could maybe have an impact and Mm. I liked words you know so (laughs) that seemed reading and writing you know it seemed so like something I could wrap my head around and um but it wasn't like I grew up uh either dying to be a lawyer necessarily. Right. I'm sure a lot of people say, because they don't necessarily realize that not all lawyers are trial lawyers, but that's what everyone thinks when they think of lawyers. Um, right. And so I'm sure a lot of people say, oh, I can see how you could have some transferable skills because they're both public speaking. But like I said, that's not for uh, it's not what everyone's doing when they're a lawyer. What I see is the main transferable skills, though, is that in both cases, you really have to be able to get to the crux of a matter 
and understand what's really going on and be able to sort of understand all the different sides of an issue in order to do the work in, in law it's and figuring out what happened so people can be tried appropriately. But in comedy, it's so that you can get to what people are feeling so that you can make them laugh about it. Yeah, yeah, I think that's pretty accurate, definitely. I think that, yeah, the transferable um, mental exercise of law, which is getting to the heart of the, like, what the, what's the issue in, in a case and is similar to what what's the funny in mm-hmm. uh, a scenario in comedy, what's the punchline, and it's also similar to what I think journalists do when they're thinking about what's the headline of a story. Mm-hmm. So you're looking at it for different reasons, but mm-hmm. you're still able to kind of get to, yeah, the, the heart of, of what the thing is in a series of, of facts. Uh, yeah. So I think that, that, that kind of thing. And then of course, like having skills about, you know, being able to express yourself and get up and, and, and speak in front of people is obviously important but there's a lot of things about law that um would have the op that are not good to for comedy and mm-hmm. um you kind of I, I feel like i've had to break away from like what uh, like i you know especially in if you're in more of a diplomatic world which where i was um just i think too much too much nuance and and too mm-hmm. much um qualification Mm. um being too careful uh in it doesn't work with words doesn't work well with comedy i think Mm. comedy is better with just um definitive statements Mm -hmm. that you kind of you know back up with funny examples and stuff but Mm -hmm. um yeah and and you know kind of trying to it it, comedy can be a a little bit absurd and thinking out of the box and, and, and law is kind of the opposite of that. So <laughs> those kind of things you have to kind of shed and, uh, and, and over time your if you spend enough time doing stand up, your brain eventually becomes sick in the way that a comedian's brain gets sick <laughs> or some people already have it naturally. And you start to see the world like with a comedic bet. And that, I mean, I'm definitely there now, but it it def- it took I mean it's been ten years so mm. I think um but there was a period of time where um and this is true of any career transition where you're kind of a few years out of your former career so you're not really good at that anymore mm-hmm. but you're only a few years into the new thing so you're not really good at that and that's like <laughs> a very bad time yeah that has to be a really tough time and um let's jump right into talking about that what helped you get through that time period was it just more reps or did you have some sort of dawning moments that helped you sort of figure that out I mean I think part of it was just um I'm very uh kind of all or nothing and Mm -hmm. I am very determined and I just decided I'm gonna keep doing this and I think probably on some level because well number one I liked it and I, I I wanted to get better at it and I saw small, you know, little increments of improvement and you have those small little wins where you learn a new thing on stage um, and you build a little bit more time Uh, that, you know, you have the first few jokes that work. That is very intoxicating. And I was also, I think, on some level determined to to prove that I could do this. 
Um, and so that, that drove me to keep, keep doing it. And also I, I think that it helps if you have a little bit of a, a sense of self and like some stability in other areas of your life, maybe like a partner that loves you and this, you know, um, mm-hmm. that your all of your self-worth isn't wrapped up in, in your job because you're, you don't have that much at that during that, those years. Right. Um, right. I mean, there's a lot that has to be going through your mind. For one, you left this position that, you know, a lot of people are going to say, Oh, good for you for having that job. So you, you leave that job for something like, entertainment which is a risky job regardless of where you're coming from so you know there's that to a certain extent had to have pushed you forward because you said hey you know i i made this transition i i this has to work out but i mean it it also has to affect your confidence when things aren't going as well and and like you said you get to that place where you're not as good at the previous job, but you're not there yet on the new job. So you're in this headspace of, well, I can't go back. And, uh, you know, I, I still need things to be better than they are. Yeah. That's got to really hit the confidence and ego really hard. Yeah. I mean, I think it it helps to be a little bit delusional, which most (laughs) have at the beginning of comedy. And it's, it's important. I don't think any of us could do this without some level of, of delusion. Um, but yeah, there is a moment where, yeah, where I, I also realized that I couldn't go back to law. I mean, it would be very hard to not just because I had lost touch with whatever was current in that, in the profession Mm -hmm. and had lost some of the sharpness and the skills and all of that, but just because, you know, at a certain point you've put so much online, you know, I've written so many, things on Twitter and Facebook that, I mean, especially working for a, like a bureaucracy, like whether the Canadian government or the UN, mm-hmm. I mean, I don't, it would be maybe hard for them to take me back, you know, I, right. uh, to be taken seriously and like, God knows what, you know, we have to erase a lot of stuff. So, cause you're supposed to, when you work at those places, be an impartial type of person and not be expressing all kinds of jokes oh, and opinions. Right. Right. So, yeah. I think, yeah, at some point you decide that that's, this is it. And so, yeah, I realized that I couldn't, it would be very hard to go back. And, mm-hmm. um, but I also just, I, I, I just really am persistent and I really, um, love, I really, I've always, I just, I love doing comedy. So, mm. um, I, I just kept forging forward and didn't, uh, and, you know, I mean, let's say I'm not, it's not like I, I made it. I, I had a very nice year and some really cool things happen, but, mm-hmm. um, and those things definitely help. But, but before the tonight show, there's always like, there's other smaller little victories that. that yeah. Could. And you do have a lot of great things on your resume that have to help with that. Um, I do want to go back for a second and just ask, because it was passion that led you into law, but what, passion led you into comedy um i you know the thing about law the the push factor out of it was that i didn't really love um like working with law itself there Mm. at the end of the day even though i was in the best area for me of law because it was connected to politics and history and i wasn't billing hours in a in a corporate law firm and i enjoyed Mm. the international environment and worked with a lot of really funny people um and with a really dark sense of humor, um, 
I, at the end of the day, it was just felt kind of limiting lies. You know, when you're writing law, it's all, it's its own language and you're limited to sources of law. And there's a hierarchy there of what you're looking towards to solve answers. And I wanted, I, I felt like I wanted to do something more creative and, um, I think that the push into comedy was that I was watching a lot of TV online, luckily was available in the Hague. So I wasn't limited to just Dutch Grey's Anatomy. Um, <laughs> and, um, the, one of the things I was watching a lot of was the daily show and John Stewart at the time was having a real impact in particular on the conversation. And he had gotten the show crossfire canceled and, yeah. It seemed like in that moment that comedy could be a very effective tool for advocacy as well. So um, to me that – and I was also very inspired by my workplace and the idea of writing a sitcom that took – like a dark comedy that took place at a war crimes tribunal. And so I – that was sort of what I – that I wanted to do was to um, write a, a show um, about where I worked and that people – I would maybe be able to reach a much broader audience um, then I could as a lawyer and mm. it exposed people to what that world of international law, international criminal law was. Um, but I didn't know anything about comedy, so I didn't realize how long all of that took. Mm. So I, when I left, I thought, well, I'll just take two years off. And if I don't make it, then I'll, no big deal. I'll just go back to law. Mm. Uh, no harm. Owl, you know, if I don't have an HBO special and my own sitcom, well, then obviously it's not for me, you know. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so I, that's like truly what I, I, I believe. I, you know, nobody, like everybody else who doesn't know anything about comedy, you don't realize how long it takes and how hard it is. Because mm-hmm. um, mm-hmm. everybody does think, a lot of people do, you know, think that they're just kind of funny and or they make people in the world, their world laugh. So that was originally the, yeah, the, the impetus was to write a sitcom based on my workplace and to, um, you know, I would do something like John Stewart, which was to have an impact by using comedy on a large segment of the population. Of course, like things have taken a turn politically and John Stewart is raising, you know, rescued dogs and other animals mm-hmm. on a farm. And, you know, Tucker Carlson is living his best white nationalist life. So right. uh, <laughs> you know, big ratings. So I, you know, I don't know that now my, my feeling about comedy saving the Republic is uh, <laughs> the same. I think we're, we've moved beyond that. And I do think that maybe the lawyers are the ones that are having the most, are the most effective people right now at stemming the, the tide of fascism. But, you know, <laughs> I, 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 you know, this is where I, this is where I find myself. So, mm-hmm. so here we are. Yeah, here we are. And, uh, yeah. you know, like I mentioned, and you mentioned as well, that you've had a, a lot of things before the Tonight Show. You were in Just for Laughs and the uh, Winnipeg Comedy Festival and you're a Laughing Skull Festival. I'm from South Carolina, so not far yeah. from Atlanta. And uh, always nice to hear Laughing Skull. Yeah, I did that festival. It was pretty, it was still a competition then. I think maybe it was up until recently. And uh, I was still pretty early on in comedy. Um, but it was, it was, so I was, I was eliminated, like, uh, probably immediately um, in the first round or whatever. But I was on the show with people who were amazing. And I loved Atlanta. And I've definitely been back since. Mm-hmm. Um, I have done a show in Charleston with my oh. wife, who's a comedian, and uh-huh. I 
Charleston is South Carolina, right? Yeah. Yes. Uh, it, and that was a beautiful place. I we only we were only there so briefly, but um, oh, I can't remember the name of the place. Was it Theater Ninety Nine? No, it was sort of like an old uh, the Commodore. Yeah. Oh, okay. I don't know like, the Commodore. It was a cool, almost like loungy, maybe music venue. Mm-hmm. Um, anyway, we did a show there and, uh, it was a lot of fun. And then we drove from there to Atlanta and, uh, listened to a lot of Christian rock, uh, in the car, <laughs> rental car. <laughs> you know, you can, uh, you could have changed the channel. You, I, you know, well, part of the problem was, and my wife has a joke about this, that, um, it's, you don't really realize that it's Christian rock until like you're a few minutes into the song sometimes because it just sounds... <laughs> regular and then yeah it takes a turn yeah yeah that was the trick um you know if you (laughs) (laughs) right 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 you know it's just sort of copy whatever's popular and uh i mean it's so many of uh the guitarists in christian rock are just trying to sound like the edge from u2 that (laughs) you know it it can it can trick you there for a little bit (laughs) yeah yeah took us a minute to clue in, we were like, this is nice, you know? Oh, oh, the person you're in love with is Jesus. Okay. Um, so, yeah, and then we would, yeah, we drove to Atlanta and, uh, well, actually, that's where I ended up doing um, the this NBC um, competition, the stand-up NBC. Uh, oh. It used to be called Stand Up for Diversity. Anyway, uh-huh. and that's where I did this process that, um, where I met the the booker for the Tonight Show was through that. He saw me during that process, and then okay. a year later, I, I auditioned specifically for the Tonight Show. But it was only because of it was because of that mm-hmm. uh, BC competition that I that he you know knew me at all. Yeah. And you're saying process, and that's the first time I really noticed you're a Canadian. Oh. Yeah. <laughs> process yeah direction uh, mm-hmm. i think the way we say pasta drama oh. the, a, the a i think because i feel like in america people say more like taco and drama like more of a pasta you know do you not say taco i say taco yeah but oh. i guess we say more ah and you guys some people here say more ah, ah like yeah. yeah taco tacos not taco yeah. i guess i'm overemphasizing. Well, yeah, that, the, so those, that's the little bit, though, I think. Those words are... I'll take it up. Um, you have also worked on a, a sketch comedy show, Baroness Von Sketch, on IFC, IFC and CBC. So that was something that was airing in CBC, but also aired, I guess, in the States on IFC. Yeah, um, it's it's such a funny show, and I was really... I just got, uh, I took, I had a little bit of time in the writer's room on the last season that hasn't yet aired. I think it's going to be, um, airing, uh, I don't know. I don't know when the air date is hopefully soon. I know that they've shot it all Uh and I'm curious to see what, if any of my sketches made it to the, the, to TV. Um, but it was really a dream. I, it was the first time I'd been in a writer's room and I think it was not the typical experience, um, in that it was like all women, I think, except for one guy who was great. And, um, it was just, it was very supportive and regular, like hours and just, 
I don't know, it was really, it was really kind of like a dream work scenario. And I think there are writer's rooms like that, but I've also, I know that that might not be like the typical experience. Mm-hmm. And I hope, um, I hope to go back there. They have another season. They just haven't figured out when the, they haven't gotten the dates yet. So ah, I, okay. I hope to join them for a, another stint uh, in their writer's room. Um, but I am going to be, there's a Canadian, but this is, there's a Canadian show, but that doesn't air in the U S called the Beaverton, which is sort of like a, it's a Canadian political satire mm-hmm. news show. And I'm going to be there working on, um, an episode the, there's going to be an election special in October. Oh, so okay. I'm getting to work on that. Yeah. Yeah. That's, that's so I'm interesting. John Stewart, you know? <laughs> yeah. You know, he, he's, um, He's Slowly. waiting for for a check, I guess, from you. <laughs> yeah. No, but that's interesting. I I don't know much about sketch writing, like how that process goes outside of what I've read, all the things I've read about SNL. So I didn't right. know that there were sketch shows where the writers would write a bunch of sketches and say like, well, I don't know what's going to get on. That's a, That's an interesting process. Yeah, I mean, I think that happens in on SNL, but it just happens within the week of that show. It happens in a week, yeah. Yeah, <laughs> um, yeah. This is in this case, the sketches are um, kind of topical in that it's like stuff that's in the zeitgeist. Right, it's what's in the ether. Yeah, um, and some of the sketches are political, but they're you know zoomed out themes, mm-hmm. um, and I. Uh, yeah, and so it, it so you have they and they their sketches are really short, and it's four women, the four baronesses, and um, they're all like in, in their forties, and so it's like a particular uh, style and and demographic, and it's just it's really funny, and it's not necessarily the voice um, of sketch that you always that you might see typically. Um, I guess there aren't really that many sketch shows, I should say anyway, but, um, I, my experience with sketch writing is limited in that I took two classes at, at UCB and, um, Mm -hmm. learned the basics and there they kind of teach you how to get up ultimately like get a packet together for what SNL would want, which is like the things that you see on SNL, a political sketch, Mm -hmm. um, a commercial parody, Mm -hmm. uh, and and to you know you think about who the actors are on SNL and how, who you cast and who normally does Trump and who normally you know so mm-hmm. uh, the uh, there uh, it's you're writing for for four women sometimes with other kind of characters maybe supplementing but um, it wouldn't be like a political a sketch where any of them are playing you know Donald Trump or. Um, Sarah Huckabee Sanders or anything like that. And they, they don't really have commercial parodies or, you know, parodies in the same way. Um, but they parody a lot of things. Um, yeah, I guess yeah. I would say it's a different style. So the packet I, right. the, I've read written here in the U.S., uh, you know, for them, it was like a different application. It was just really to write sketches that look like would fit for those four women. Right. Okay. And how long have you lived in New York? Well, I've been here uh, three years. I moved with my wife. She was the one that got the green card. She likes me to tell people that because (laughs) 
she's she's Arab and and I'm I, I'm Jewish slash white, so I you know people usually assume it was me, but it was it was Obama who who let us in and um, we moved yeah just I guess it was April 2016, so six months before uh, Trump came into power mm-hmm. or was elected, and um, I think a lot of the things that make America not great mm-hmm. do make it. Um, good for show business and the things that make Canada a good country to live in maybe don't make it great for show business. Um, oh, interesting. I think, uh, yeah. Hmm. So it's been, we moved here for, for show business and in that sense, it has been really, um, really great. And we've had so many opportunities we would never have had if we had not been here. Oh, awesome. Even back home, because people care about you a lot more in Canada once you've moved to the U.S. You know, I've heard that in regard, I think, uh, maybe it was Martin Short. I can't remember. There are a few people who um, who are from Canada who got big here who sort of pointed out that <laughs> once mm-hmm. you do well here, then you get a little, you get more attention there. Mm-hmm. All of a sudden, attention that they weren't giving you when you were there. Uh, <laughs> No, they need like, they need like, then it's like, well, you became famous in America. So now we're like proud to claim you and all that. But there is a tendency in the, in the culture not to, there isn't like a celebrity culture in Canada. And, Mm -hmm. um, and, and so they, they don't people, there isn't a system to really, like, there's not a star system to promote people. Like, I don't think we would ever have a reality show. Mm minister we have a famous prime minister now but because his father was prime minister but oh. he's not famous because of tv like nobody could be famous enough in canada to become a prime minister because they're famous do you know what i mean like it's just no, no i get what you mean i mean like trump rose to where he rose because he was some big celebrity that people knew yeah and I, I know I, I just don't feel like that could ever we could ever have a threat of that because there's no celebrities, you know, unless right. it was like Justin Bieber. But even then, I don't know that there's a premium placed on that, like in a positive way. There's this idea of the, the tall poppy syndrome. I don't know if you've heard of that, but Mm-mm. it's a Canadian thing. And I, I'm, I know that Australians say it as well. But basically that no if one poppy grows taller than the others in the field it needs to be cut down you know that there that you shouldn't no one should rise too high above everybody else and like wanting to be famous and 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 being very ambitious and being open about that um is is like looked down upon Mm -hmm. you know um whereas here it's it's something that is valued in the culture as yeah you know as positive yeah, and I that's not something I like. <laughs> no, and, and that's why it's like but but it it's you know, at the same time if you are in show business it's um it's it, makes, it serves you, yeah. It's, it, yeah. It's it's just the whole I've just heard from a number of different people who've who work with teenagers who say they want to be a YouTube celebrity or an Instagram celebrity and that that worries me when I hear stuff like that because when I was in high school of course there were kids who were saying they wanted to be famous but they wanted to be famous for an actual talent you know they they were singers and they wanted to get famous doing that 
Whereas yeah. there are kids now who are just like, whatever, just doing whatever. Yeah. It's, they don't have a skill. <laughs> they just no. want to get on YouTube and then just hope it blows up. Yeah. And that, 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 that's, that's something, that's a phenomenon of, uh, of, of like the younger generation for sure. Yeah. I mean, that's uh, the influence that Paris Hilton and, and, you know, the like have had where, you know, didn't really, doesn't really have anything going for them, No, (laughs) but But got super famous. It's so, it's so accessible, the, you know, internet to any kid that they could, they don't need to be. Hilton or whatever, right? Mm-hmm. They they could just uh, they just have to build up subscribers and then they could make quite a bit of money. So, yeah. Right, which, yeah. you know, there's the side of that that helps, and this goes back to your point about there being a system that helps people in the entertainment industry, but also in the business world, you know? I mean, if you, if you are uh, trying to get more customers, whether that is an audience for your comedy or uh, customers for a service you provide, uh, you know, getting your name out there more and having more people aware of you because you of your use of the Internet, the better for your business. And so that part I can live with. But when it's just sort of I just want a bunch of people to know who I am. Yeah. <laughs> And I don't want to use uh, a skill to help others. That that bothers me. That really yeah. concerns me. Yeah, I mean, I I don't know what will be the future of um, all of these YouTube stars and how what the longevity is there. Um, but and I I don't even know what, what how I if maybe I would have been going after that too if I was if it was available at that age. I don't know. Um, mm-hmm. I, I definitely am someone who is easily influenced and, you know, has have had gone through many phases in my life of being passionate and, you know, going full throttle into, into something. And, um, you know, because people around me that I was friends with were excited about a band. I don't know. I, I, I could imagine falling into it. Uh, if I was that age, um, it must be it to have a big following. I mean, it, I don't know. It it's like we, you know, it's something that we're looking for. I I can only imagine what that how intoxicating that must be when you're when you're young like when you're a right. kid. Right. Yeah. Right. And I definitely I I always pump the brakes when it becomes like oh these kids today because honestly Yeah. Every generation pretty much acts the same. It's not it's not the age that matters. It's the tools they have. Yeah, or the, just the, the world around them. So I, I agree with you. If if uh, YouTube and Instagram existed the way it does now, when I was a teenager, I would probably be into some frivolous things too. You know, <laughs> I mean, my my point is just, or my my concern is just that there's no discipline for some people. I mean, there are a lot of young people who are very disciplined. I mean, a 15 year old was just in Wimbledon. And uh, beat Serena Williams or uh, Venus Williams, but uh, a fifteen-year-old, you know. <laughs> that's crazy. I, I didn't know that. I haven't been following Wimbledon. I, I know what's going on, but that's that's wow. Yeah, it's wild, and um, I didn't. I haven't looked this up, but I don't even know if like fifteen 
is uncommon to be in Wimbledon. I, it's just wild to me that there's a 15 year old. <laughs> not be. I mean, for sure. It seems I would have thought that they'd be in some junior league, actually. Right. I don't know. And and the the headlines I saw weren't saying youngest person in Wimbledon ever beats a Williams sister. It was just that uh, she won the match. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, so they didn't. Maybe um, uh, maybe uh, just that she's the youngest doesn't trump that a Williams sister just got knocked out of Wimbledon already. But um, yeah, there's two headlines there. So, yeah. <laughs> yeah. I don't know. It's just wild. But, uh, you know, I, I definitely am just not one of those, oh, these millennials, because really it's not so much the, because they're young. It's because of how they, the world they were raised in. Yeah. And and what was at their disposal? I mean, is being into a YouTube celebrity all that different than being into the cast of Friends? I don't really think so. I mean, it's it's entertainment. Right. Um, it's just, uh, yeah, I, yeah. I don't I don't understand it completely, but um, it probably just yeah, it seems like another variation on the yeah. on the general theme, right? Of, of being a fandom when you're when you're young, and uh, um, yeah, I don't know. We'll have to see what happens. I the only thing I don't that I think is 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 dumb, although I understand it, is when YouTube stars get booked for live shows and you know because they have a following but they have no idea how to perform on stage you know right Um, right they need a different format and um you know the live stage is it doesn't translate let's say it doesn't translate yeah they need some sort of different format than your traditional comedy show because it's not it it doesn't work it doesn't ever go well and that's not incredibly different than when um after bieber posted some videos on youtube and blew up everybody started posting videos of themselves singing on youtube and then because bieber was so big everyone was trying to find the next bieber so they started just grabbing a bunch of people from the internet and putting them on television before they were ready, they didn't have the voice for it. They were used to singing into a into a laptop screen in their bedroom. They weren't used to having to project very much. And, uh, and they also were used to playing alone and not playing with a band. And so I saw a number of people, I guess Lana Del Rey famously had a bad SNL performance, but um, there are, I'm even thinking of other people who went on talk shows and had bad performances because they weren't ready for the stage that they were on. Right. That's no, just absolutely. not setting people up for success. No. Um, no, absolutely not. That's just getting greedy and wanting to sell tickets. Yeah. And knowing there's a, a subscriber base. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Um, you know, and I always go back to, even if you just care about money, you're going to do the best if you just try to make something good. And so you just have to set everybody up for success if you want to do that. Yeah. Yeah. Let's get back to talking about your comedy. One thing that I feel like I struggle with when it comes to trying to say something funny, but is talking about a serious topic is making it funny. You know, I feel like I can, I feel like I can make the serious point without it, um, 
but that you know, I, I feel I can easily make the serious point, but I can't then translate it into a joke, <laughs> into actually working as a joke. Right. How do you do that? Um, well, no, I'm not always successful at it, but I, <laughs> I do, um, I do think it's important not to focus so much on a, on a message and to yeah. try to find, you know, to start from a place of something being something funny that happened. Um, I like, for example, with stuff around Trump, I was finding comedy in, um, just the act of, of the resistance and the, you know, the everyday things that I was doing that were like, felt like just a drop in the bucket. You know, I like that kind of idea of, um, how ridiculous it is as, you know, just trying, trying to find a way. Um, I mean, it's kind of like the putting the the key between your fingers (laughs) as a a self-defense mechanism. Mm -hmm. Um, when you're up against a machine like the Koch brothers and the Republican party and, and all of this, um, and they've seized, you know, power of most branches of government, or at least before the midterms for sure had. And, um, and so, you know, you're out there marching and, and just let the experience of being around other people and you're all kind of trying to do something to stop it. But, you know, are you, and, 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 and so I just, I find a lot of comedy in, trying to do the right thing, but not necessarily, uh, achieving it. Um, that's like a kind of broad, broad theme, um, with which I approach serious topics is my point of view of, of, of caring and, um, and you know, the, the comedy that comes from trying to, trying to do good and, and failing. Mm-hmm. Um, and, uh, yeah, I think that, that that's generally it. I, I try not to come in so messagey. Um, there is, I, I like when the message is uh, just kind of uh, a bonus of the joke. Um, but the main gist of what you're saying is something that's a joke. Um, and mm-hmm. I do, I mean, I talk about my relationship a lot with my wife and that's already kind of necessarily political because I'm Jewish and she's Palestinian and we make little jokes, but just even us, um, but it comes from a a position, you know, it comes from a place of these are really ultimately jokes about marriage and relationships. Right. Which is extremely relatable. Yeah. Um, Because it's still just about how people relate. I mean, that's, I guess one of the powerful things that, maybe isn't stated directly when you make jokes about your relationship, but it it serves this purpose of, Hey, you know, it doesn't matter if you're gay or straight or pans or whatever your gender is, whatever your sexuality is or whatever nationality or whatever religion you're, you're from or, or a part of, you're a person, you relate to other people. We all relate to people like this. When you're, when you're living with a partner, this is just what happens to all of us. And that right. helps bridge a lot of gaps, I think. Yeah, definitely. So I think people relate on, on those topics. And then there's like the added backdrop of, of the politics that adds um, like another layer of comedy and uh, tension, you know, um, 
which is which is really fun. Oh, um, yeah. Sometimes I do try to write jokes about something I'm mad about, um, but and 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 sometimes I can get there, but it's because um, I I think that you know when you're mad about something it it can be a good place to write comedy from mm-hmm. if you're able to um get enough distance from it but that like initial <laughs> passion and energy of the thing you know like if you're passionate about something and anger is some as a kind of a passion you know is, um that in the world you know something that you think is 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 unjust and absurd and whatever um <laughs> That that can be a starting point for comedy. Sometimes it sometimes it can end up in a funny place. I think the two things that I struggle with the most, and this is maybe pretty common for a lot of people, uh, one is when you do that thing where you where you just make a point, but you it's not actually a joke, but you say it like it is. You know, I don't know if. Uh, um, I'm trying to think of a good example. That on Twitter for sure. Oh yeah, now that definitely does happen on Twitter. Um, Yes, always translate to the stage, although I've tried here and there. (laughs) Yeah, and you know, I think um, Fred Armisen had a character on SNL on Weekend Update where he would just read a headline and just be like, "Eh, you know, come on, right? You know, like it's that sort of thing. Like that can be easier to end up doing than one might think. Um, especially, especially seeing that bit, but I struggle with that. And the other thing, sometimes if I do twist it into a joke, some, it's easy to make it a simple joke. Like, um, I don't know what jokes you have, uh, in regards to your religion and, or, or you're being Jewish and your right. wife being Palestinian, but I have it not, I haven't seen you do this, but I have seen people in the past make the sort of simple joke you know the sort of like hack low-hanging fruit jokes and those right. those can be easier uh to do those sort of uh, traps can be easy to fall into what do you do to try to get around that um i i don't know i guess i try not to go to the obvious or if i start in an obvious place and i then try to and I get people on board there, then I try to take it somewhere else after. Um, and I think I don't really have a lot of, um, jokey jokes. Mm-hmm. Uh, I kind of sometimes wish I have had more. I have definitely a few, um, but they all kind of still come from, um, a personal place or experience. So I think, you know, everything that I, every, uh, observation that I have, um, or political joke or joke about sexuality, it's all, um, stems from some kind of personal experience. So I, I think that that if, if, if things, if something's infused with uh, the personal, um, and is grounded in something that happened to you, at least as a starting point, Mm. it makes it a little bit less, uh, easy to fall into a, a hacky trap in the sense that, it's your story. So the likelihood that someone else has the same bit is, is less. Right. Or that many people I should say have the same bit is less. Mm-hmm. Like I have this joke that was on the, that I did on the tonight show that, um, is what they like put is as the meme that they then use for a promo, <laughs> which is a joke about the, the thesaurus stealing a thesaurus. 
and as a kid and or shoplifting at the source and then i say but i felt so guilty so remorseful so shameful so repentant <laughs> that i returned it and that's like a very jokey joke but the truth is is that it came from a real place because i'm not capable of just sort of making that joke up without because uh, i don't typically write like one-liner jokes like that but i it, it mm. came from a place of me really actually having accidentally shoplifted a thesaurus when I was a kid because mm-hmm. I put that in that in my pocket of my coat and, and I had other books I was carrying and mm-hmm. I forgot about the one in my pocket and so when I w- checked out at the cash I paid for the other books and then when I got to the bus stop I put my hand in my pocket of my coat and I found that I had the thesaurus and mm-hmm. and so it was even you know it sounds like a joke that a one-liner comedian would just invent as they sit down to write, maybe they operate from the idea of a thesaurus and like coming up with a bunch of synonyms for something. But um, I, I can't think in those terms. So it it truthfully came from a real like a thing that I actually did. Yeah. Um, and then the joke part was like a jokey part, you know. Right. But that didn't feel uh, bad jokey, you know, like, no. you know, though that that seems... It doesn't seem obvious, um, but it is that thing, I guess, when people hear it, they go like, ah, yeah, because it's right. a thesaurus. You know, that right. yeah. that that's, doesn't feel cheap to me. Um, no, I think, I... you know, and so that's, you know, that I, that joke I like. Um, Let's talk about the jokes you don't like of mine. Let's get into it. <laughs> 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 that's another whole I did point. emphasize saying like that one I don't have. But I mean, I, I meant you versus other people I've seen. Right, um, right. <laughs> your that stuff would, I like. I've seen some. podcast though. Just, you just get on the phone with people and you're like, these are the jokes of yours I don't like. Let's get into it. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sure somebody is doing that. Probably, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> As a podcast, and yeah. I, uh, boy, <laughs> good luck to them. Yeah, <laughs> I, I think one of the lessons to learn when it comes to, especially doing the more serious material, is that you, you do have time to to sort of let things breathe a little bit. I think, for me at least, when I if I do go for uh, the cheaper laugh or, uh, or or just don't really get to anything is because I feel like I have to make the joke quicker. But that's not as in style anymore. I think people are drawing things out a little bit to sort of a- appropriately set up a premise. Mm-hmm. And so I, I think that's the thing I'm learning from listening to you is that, and also seeing the comedy that's out there now, is that people don't have to rush the joke. Right. No, and I think, you know, you can uh, always find small punchlines in a longer bit. You can always find small punchlines on the way to um, the the actual, you know, joke that you're going for. Right. And to keep people um, engaged and at least laughing uh, somewhat as you set things up. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Ideally. Yes. Well, We've reached the end of the episode. Now it's time for us to create something together. And okay. I'm I'm trying to think what we could create together. I don't know if you have any ideas. Um, I guess we could try to find a joke or, or, or a topic that might be 
serious and then see how to make it see where to find the humor so mm-hmm. that it, it could work. Maybe we could do that. Or do you want we could do that unless you want to tell me a, a joke that you think is is um, is low hanging fruit and we can make it better. Oh, that's a good that's a good one, but too. Either way. Um, I don't have one offhand that's low hanging fruit, but I do feel like I have. Well, I guess this one isn't serious, but there was one that was that that I felt was maybe a a little low hanging fruit, and I asked a friend about it, and she said, "Yeah, that's that's a bit, you know, maybe too too front of brain or something." So that joke was that uh, I hate when people say like like jerks or bossy people say that they are type A and that's why they act the way they act. Yeah. And I say, you know, you're not type A, you're type A hole. Right, right, right. Um, And so, you know, like (laughs) I told that once or twice and it got laughed, but it never fully felt right. Like it did feel like, yeah, they probably could have thought of that too. Yeah. Well, I mean, sometimes like, I don't know if you, early in comedy, I'm trying to think of an example, but I had a joke where, I where the audience like sometimes the audience if they yell out your punchline before you've said it then yeah. that's a surefire way to know <laughs> it's it needs to be scrapped I sometimes I have fun um, with something like that that's like obvious um, and then you can always like make fun of it a little bit mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. Um, sometimes I'll say I'll tell the audience especially if they laugh you know I'll tell them that I'm not proud of of the joke you know that i just said (laughs) and kind of get mad at them for going for it you know Mm -hmm. um like i have one where i say that um my mom comes from peru and she's jewish which means i get my cocaine wholesale (laughs) and like i you know i hate jokes about um jews and money Uh i do that one and then i i didn't even pick up on that part of it no well, so I, you know, I, I, but I like to, you know, I, I have fun getting mad at them for laughing, um, at a stereotype or whatever that I've just mm. said, you know, right. um, but, uh, with the A, uh, <laughs> so type A, a hole, I mean, you know, I guess, um, I don't know if there's a place to be self-deprecating about the fact that if you were type A, you would have written a better punchline. that's funny and um what if yeah yeah what if you uh, can you do the thing where it's like or is this a joke where someone could do the thing where they anticipate uh the audience sort of seeing it coming and then go a different direction like instead of like oh that's not type a that's type a dick right right it seems like that wouldn't do as well because you're you're you know essentially you're setting up an expectation right um and there's it's not enough time to really set up the anticipation of saying a hole yeah um hmm hmm i mean unless it just you you don't do it with type a if you, unless you don't use a at all right you just right. say you just give a much longer answer of the kind descriptive of the kind of person that they are, you know? Right. Right. Like, oh, okay. Yeah. I don't take responsibility for my own actions mm-hmm. 
because it's easier to blame it on the psychological diagnosis that, you know, what is overused. What, I, what, I don't know. Um, you know what I mean? Like it yeah, I see it. in a different, like if you could find um, a funnier description of mm-hmm. who that person really is. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't know. That's the counter. No, that's a good one too. Point. I don't um, know. Yeah. I like it. I've never tried to write jokes like this before on Skype. <laughs> <laughs> no, I just, I, there, there's so many different moves that people can make. And, uh, you know, sometimes I hit a wall when it's just like, uh, I'm just not, uh, it's, I'm just not witty enough, I guess, or I'm not clever enough to uh, like, I know the moves that people are making, but I don't know how to use the moves so well. Um, but it's, and it's also that there are a lot of, there's, a, I mean, there's a finite number of moves usually. Mm-hmm. Uh, and sometimes we don't see them all, but also they're actually fewer than maybe there appear because it depends what your, what your voice is and what kind of punchline makes sense in the style of your act, you know? So if, uh, it, it might work for someone to say, um, a hole type a hole um, mm-hmm. might not work for someone else to say that you know um, so yeah some some things it depends uh, what works coming from from you in the context of your point of view and your voice and mm-hmm. style of jokes I think mm-hmm. um, is something to I, I've started you know now I after a little while now I like at the beginning I had a friend who uh, is well she continues to be further ahead in comedy than me um but would say like oh but this isn't the kind these, i have all these jokes but they're not jokes that i would would really work in my act and i was like what do you mean like work in your act like you know don't you like just have any jokes like isn't any like having jokes just good like isn't that enough you know um but now i kind of do understand that there are certain things that just don't don't fit you know um and um would be better served being said by somebody else. A lot of stuff with my, with my wife, because some things are shared experiences. It's like, well, is it funnier coming from you as a Palestinian woman? Or is it funnier coming from me as the Jewish person in the relationship or the Mm -hmm. white woman or the, you know, Mm -hmm. or just, is it, is it funnier coming from you because you're this kind of personality type and I'm this kind of personality type. Um, So I think that that's something to consider too, in terms of the different moves that you make. Or potentially could make with a with a joke. Yeah. Well, there it is. Jessica, thanks so much for being on the podcast. You're welcome. Thanks for having me. Have not had a chance to use that joke yet. I'm going to do it later this week. I'm going to do stand-up for my comedy birthday. And I uh, can't believe it. it's been 10 years since I started doing comedy. You would think I'd be a lot better at it by now. Uh, But there's someone who's really great at it, Jess Solomon. You, if you are in Montreal or heading that way, on July 22nd at the Just for Last Festival, Jess and her wife will be taping a comedy special of their duo, the L. Solomons, and the special will be for the Canadian streaming service, Crave. And they'll be doing their show in Toronto in September for Just for Last 42. And don't forget to follow her on social media at Jess underscore Solomon and her cartoon account with her wife, the L. Solomons. Links in bio. You can also follow us, Twitter and Facebook, at There It Is Pod. So please do it. Until next time, be good to each other.
The music for the theme song was created by Neil Brooks. The rap was written and performed by Nick Acevedo. The logo for There It Is was created by Jeff Prater. The There It Is podcast is produced by Jason Farr. (laughs) 